Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving, giving us your word that we might learn of you and know you. And we thank you most of all for giving us uh, your word incarnate, the Son, Jesus Christ, that we might um, know you not in pen and, pen and paper alone, but in uh, flesh and blood. And so we might know the, the lengths to which you go to secure us for yourself, to show us your love. And uh, we pray that as we uh, read your word in pen and ink, that we would come to know your son in flesh and blood, that your Holy Spirit would be stirring our affections to, to love him more truly and opening our eyes to see him more truly, opening our ears to hear his truth. And we pray that the, meditation, uh, the, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've noticed, each time the, the New Testament reading has just, we've just added verses on. It just keeps getting longer, right? And so uh, we're continuing to work through this first chapter of James, and we're working through uh, verses 13 through 18. We read 1 through 18, but we're going to focus on verses 13 through 18 this morning. And in this first chapter, James has been elaborating on God's method of, of using trials of various kinds as a way of perfecting the believer, right? Even the trial of wealth, as we saw last week. And James has been encouraging believers to respond to the trials of life with faith, expressing a, a certain obstinacy and, and stubbornness to keep Christ, even if everything else is stripped away. And the faith of, of a believer looks to God as their most valuable possession, humbly trusting even that his employment of trials in our lives are necessary given our profound brokenness to truly understand and experience his character and for us to experience growth. Through his wisdom and, and power, testing produces endurance and endurance results in maturity and perfection in the life of the believer, right? And he, he drives this this chain of events in the life of the believer in order to accomplish his will for us, which is our sanctification and our, our glorification. But at the same time that James traces this, this chain of productivity through trials, he also alludes to the fact that trials are sometimes destructive. By pronouncing a blessing over the one who endures trials in verse 12, James is subtly acknowledging that there are some who do not. Right? There are some for whom the experience of trials becomes the occasion for giving way to temptation and descending into sin. And in verses 13 through 15, James is addressing those times when the experience of some trial was deformative and vice, not virtue, was born out of it. And James anticipates a, a complaint from the person who has given himself to temptation and is looking for someone to blame for his failure. He foresees our attempt to blame God for putting us in such a difficult position in the first place. This is the objection that if God is the one who's ordained the circumstances of our lives according to his purposes, then why should we be to blame when the circumstances he ordered result in sin on our part? Isn't God at least partially to blame for this? And it's an argument that we've been making since the birth of our rebellious nature. Right? After Adam had eaten fruit from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, God confronted him by asking, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? And Adam's response was this, 
the woman you gave to me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Right. And in this masterful piece of deflection, not only does Adam cast blame on Eve, but he also insinuates that God himself shares in the blame for after all, it was God who created Eve and introduced the two of them to each other on a blind date. But was this a fair accusation for Adam to make for us to repeat? In verse 13, James admits that temptation typically accompanies every trial in life. The statement in verse 13 includes not an if, but a when. No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. But he wants to be clear that the two are not the same. Trials and temptations are different in their sources. Trials are these external things, while temptations to sin are born from within our fallen nature. God tempts no one to sin. And James is saying it's inaccurate to accuse him of such because it's actually contrary to his very nature. This is what he's saying in verse 13 when he explains that God cannot be tempted by evil. Right? To tempt someone to sin is an evil thing. Therefore, James is saying is that God cannot even be tempted to tempt. He sends trials our way, but he never tempts us to sin in the midst of those trials. On the contrary, his intention is our sanctification. James says that God will crown those who endure trials with life. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that God prepares an escape for every person experiencing temptation. He desires our victory, tempts no one to sin, and even provides an escape to those who turn their attention to him in the midst of their temptation. But if God's not the source of temptation, then where does it come from? In another chain of events, James describes the source of temptations that arise in the midst of trials. Temptations come from desires that live within us. And beginning in verse 14, James writes, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Now, the New Testament scholar Dan McCartney wants us to understand that desire here refers not to human emotions or wants generally, as though James were advocating a stoic avoidance of all normal human passions, but to the desire to do evil, the desire for self-exaltation and personal gratification, or for safety at the expense of the right. In other words, desire here refers to a, a sinful impulse that's exaggerated and chafes against the limitations brought about by trials, seizing the opportunity to rise up and reproduce in the heart of the believer. And these desires could be lust or greed, anger, gluttony, sloth, envy, any of the other vices that are born out of our fallen natures. And James personifies desire in general in verse 14, where desire is pictured as a, a, a hunter luring and enticing a believer to listen to its skewed logic, enticing us to escape a trial rather than to the voice of God who calls us through trials so that endurance might be produced and maturity and perfection in turn be the product of this perseverance. And James then switches metaphors in verse 15 to talk about desire as a mother giving birth. When that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Here's a chain of events in direct contrast to the chain of events that began 
with endurance in verses 3 and 4 and resulted in perfection. The chain of events that begins with desire leads ultimately to death. And it begins, as McCartney explains, when the human will yields to desire and gives credence to the lie. The imagery here is powerful for James is saying that the fostering of some sinful desire in us, feeding it with the the fantasies of our mind or conversations that will never actually be spoken outside the bitterness of our hearts, is likened to impregnating these desires and allowing them to multiply. The result will be the birth of desire's child, which is sin. And sin, when it grows up, eventually becomes pregnant in the fertile world of our unrestrained imagination and brings forth death in the life of the believer. This is the process by which Satan, our great adversary in this world, gains ground in the, in the battle for the soul of a believer. He uses the impulses and desires that naturally arise in us when we experience trials in our fallen state. You know, years ago, Pauline was uh, teaching at a retreat or a conference and Uh, The passage she was using for one of the sessions was the Old Testament passage, which was read for you earlier this morning. It's the story of Cain murdering his brother Abel. This, according to the Genesis account, was the first generation after Adam and Eve, and already the depravity of humanity had escalated to the point of murder. But what Pauline was pointing out, which I I think is a really interesting point, is that in the story of Cain and Abel, there's a, a character that's missing that actually played a central role in the story of Adam and Eve. And that character is Satan. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, pictured as a serpent serpent in Genesis 1. But in Cain's temptation, there's no serpent. Instead, there are desires. There's anger and envy. And the warning that God offers in verse 7, that sin lurks at the door of Cain's heart. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. No external tempter was necessary in this story for already humanity was capable of being our own tempters with all our inordinate and fallen desires swirling around in our hearts and minds. You see, we're capable, every one of us, of giving quarter and shelter to desires that give birth to sin, which in turn give birth to death. Death in ourselves and in our families, our communities, even in our churches. And so the warning God gave Cain holds true for us as well. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must master it. But how? And the answer to that question comes in the command James issues in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved. There are multiple levels of of deception that James is warning against here. He's warning about the deception that humanity engages in every day. That we're not as bad as people say we are, right? We're not as capable of evil as James is making us out to be. That we're more innocent than we actually are. Do not be deceived, my beloved. We're capable of carrying out great evils with the best of intentions to justify them. Right? We deceive and we cheat and we steal and we scoff and we condemn and we have perfectly good reasons to do all of them. Meanwhile, these desires destroy our souls and within us, desires delivering sin and sin growing up inside of us will soon give birth to death. 
So James is saying, don't be deceived. Soberly, humbly acknowledge our great capacity for sin and thus our need for forgiveness and grace and discipline, right? We, we must structure our lives that these desires within us that give birth to sin find an inhospitable environment. We, we must give them no quarter and instead devote ourselves to the, the Christian disciplines that encourage virtue while starving out vice, right? So we give away a significant percentage of our income in order to starve out our proclivity towards greed. We fast in order to starve our tendency for gluttony and to expose the anger that cloaks itself in hunger in order to make itself more acceptable. We commit ourselves to prayer at set times throughout the day in order to push back against the immense waste of time that benefits only Twitter and Instagram. We fill our heads with scripture so that there's a narrative in our hearts, minds and bodies running contrary to the narratives of power and self-promotion that run throughout our culture. And this is, this is one, uh, another one of those levels of deception that James is warning about, that those things the world tells us are innocent, right? The deceptive narratives of sin, which always seek to normalize and minimize sin in our minds by expanding our moral categories, our tolerance of them. Do not be deceived, my beloved, James says. Right? Test the narratives of the culture, right? Test them. Hold them up to the light. Examine them and offer a competing one, right? And one such narratives, right, is that our private and public lives can be separated without one affecting the other. So that what happens in a bedroom or behind a computer screen is a completely private affair without any damage done to public life and should therefore be left alone from either judgment or restriction. It's an argument that's been made for a number of years that's crumbling along with our communities and along with the young men and women who lack healthy concepts of relationships defined by trust and self-giving love. Wendell Berry, in an essay entitled Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community, explains the connection between private and public life and the danger of attempting to separate them. He writes, community life is, by definition, a life of cooperation and responsibility. Private life and public life without the disciplines of community interest necessarily gravitate toward competition and exploitation. As private life casts off all community restraints in the interest of economic exploitation or ambition or self-realization or whatever, the communal supports of public life also, and by the same stroke, are undercut and public life becomes simply the arena of unrestrained private ambition and greed. The goals of public or community life govern and restrain private behavior and private behavior in return provides the necessary stability and discipline necessary for a community to survive, but separate the private from the public in order to justify, say something like a divergent sexual desire or the, and the public life is in turn threatened. Do not be deceived, my beloved, right? The private and the public are married to one another. Do not be deceived by the supposed innocent narratives of the world which feed and inform those desires in us that give birth to sin and bring forth death in us in our communities. But there's one more layer to the deception that James warns about in verse 16. And that's a deception about the character of God, right? If the other two layers of deceit already mentioned about our, about our innocence and the innocence of the world's narratives were negative, this deception's positive. 
For this, for the, with this deception, James is not calling for a defense, right? But beckoning us to understand the character of God. If you're going to master the sin that desires to have you, then you must not only be on your guard, right? That's only half of it. You must also possess a positive understanding of yourself as God sees you. In verses 17 and 18, James wants us to know that God is the unchanging source of all good things. In verse 17, he writes, Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. But the gift James most wants to highlight God giving us is the gift of life. Continuing his birthing metaphor, James writes, in fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Having just spent the previous four verses warning us about our our capacity for evil, our depravity, James now tells us that despite these things, God delights in us. He gives us birth. He gives us life. And in contrast to his previous birthing metaphor of unruly desires giving birth to sin as a result of an unplanned pregnancy, the birth that God gave to us was in fulfillment of his own purpose. It was purposeful and deliberate. He gave us life, knowing full well who we are. It's an incomprehensible love perhaps paralleled only in something like the story of Hosea, where the the prophet marries a prostitute, knowing full well what she is. Yet God delights in us. He celebrates us, for we are his children, products of his love and grace. We are the first fruits of his creatures. Dan McCartney explains that first fruits were the finest harvest, the finest produce that was set apart as an offering to God, was considered God's special possession. That's what we are. We are what we are. And yet we are God's. And in that sense, we are what we aren't. And James is wanting us to live in this world with its inordinate desires, false narratives, by holding both of these identities together in tension with one another. You are not as innocent as you might believe. And you, you fall for the deceptive narratives of the world. Oh, but yet you are a child of God. You are guilty, and yet you're loved. Or as Tim Keller often says, you are far worse than you ever believed, and yet far more loved than you can even imagine. That's the gospel. And the gospel alone provides the humility, the power, and the motivation that's necessary to master the sin that desires us as we endure the trials of this world. Therefore, do not be deceived, my beloved. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And if you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. No temptation has overcome you that's not common to everyone. But God is faithful, and he'll not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he'll, he'll provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing as you wait for the harvester to come and collect his first fruits for an eternal feast that will know nothing of trial or temptation.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.